Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. Now, David and I have always been uh, enormously fond of the pioneering island records label uh its artists its sleeves its folklore in fact it was the the island uh, sampler nice enough to eat that really opened up a whole new world for me it introduced me to traffic and king crimson and nick drake and now a sumptuous new book has appeared telling the story there it is of the first series of records that were released uh on ireland between 1959 and 1968, appropriately one foot square so that album sleeves can be reproduced pretty much actual size. And it has a wonderful title, The Island Book of Records. And it's edited by an old pal of ours who used to do press for Island Records. Neil Story, Neil, lovely to see you, enviably in France. Bonjour, as they bonjour, say. Bonjour, bonjour. Um, How are you it's doing? It's actually All right. quite nice to see the you holding the, the book up because we don't actually have printed copies. We've had our our own copy printed locally, um, but that's not bound in the same way that yours is. So it's quite it's quite nice to see it with a real cover as well. Uh, so the, right, the well, first, you don't even know the weight of it yet. <laughs> no, quite. So <laughs> the first the, the first surprise for me was good grief, this is volume one. This is you know 1959 yeah. to 68. So how's it gonna how's it gonna work out going forward? Is it is it a second volume or a third volume or what or what? And a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. Volume two, we're actually underway on volume two, which is 1969 to 1970. Um well, that's only just the, two years. Really? That's astonishing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but then there was a lot out in those two years. There was, and I haven't dared tell Emma, who's our editor at um, at Manchester Uni- University Press, but uh, she'll be horrified to learn that it's already at four hundred and forty pages. Wow! So, well, that 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 sets the tone, really. This yeah. is very comprehensive. This is extraordinary. You know, this is like. It's like being in the record shop of your dreams going through this <laughs> stuff because, you know, I, I, I speak to somebody who wasted most of my young life in record shops and a great deal of this stuff I'd never seen at all, you know. So it was absolutely extraordinary to see it see it all laid out in the way it is. So w- the best way to talk about this, it, I mean, it, it starts in the early days, obviously, in Jamaica. That's That's what it's selling, isn't it? That's what Chris Blackwell's island label is selling is is the qualities of jamaica is that fair to say uh, 
Yeah, I suppose so in a, in a funny sort of way, although I don't think anybody thought of it in those kind of terms at that time. Um, it was more for, I mean, the first four albums, which are the two Lance Hayward, the Owen Gray and the Ernest Wranglin, they were only issued initially in, in Jamaica. The Owen Gray was brought in on import, or rather it was licensed to Starlight in the in the UK. I mean, those are as rare as hen's teeth. They really, really are rare. They were pressed in very, very limited quantities. And at that particular point, that was really when Chris was working on on 45s much more than he was working on on albums. I mean, the Lance Haywood one, the first Lance Haywood one came about um, because he was dragged in to see Lance play at the Half Moon by his cousin, Barbara Cuddy. Barbara Cuddy at one point ran Ireland, the, the, um, uh, the Ireland offices in Manhattan. That was the first time I, I met her going over there. Anyway, and she, it was her father who ran the, the, the Half Moon. Chris got to see them, had a couple of rums too many that night and basically said, you know what, I'd love to record you. Next time he saw them, he was asked, when are you going to record us? Right. And that's how the whole thing began. And we're looking, I'm looking at the cover now of that um, uh, Lance Hayward, a half moon there, and there he is with the grand piano on the beach. Yeah, that's, they, well, that's they, volume two, isn't it? It's just gorgeous. And th- yeah, there's a palm tree, isn't it? The band are all set up on the sand, the people swimming in the background. And that's part of the real attraction, I think, as Dave was saying, for us, is, 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 is particularly in, in, in Britain, was that it was so exotic and warm and tropical, wasn't it? Romantic, the whole idea of island records. Yeah, absolutely. But that's exactly what they did. And they lifted the piano out of the bar and they walked it onto the beach. <laughs> absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you know, why not? That's that's what we need for the album cover shot, so why not? So he was also, um, the young Chris Blackwell, you know, on Jamaica, he was also involved in um, one of the things that brought, brought Jamaica international into international prominence was of course Doctor No. Absolutely. The, the film. Well, Go on. His mother, Blanche Backwell, was uh I suppose now known as as Ian Fleming's muse. Whether there was a a proper full-scale relationship, you know, who knows, probably. Um and through Blanche's connection with Ian Fleming, then Chris was offered a job as uh, scout or location scout, it should be said, for uh, for for the film. Um, he, I spent some time with him earlier this year, and he told me this wonderful story that he was in the the cutting room. I think it's called the cutting room or the viewing room or whatever it is room um, with Cubby Broccoli and who's the other guy? Saltzman. Salt, Harry Saltzman. Yeah. Right. And it was just the three of them in there, and they were the first people to see the rushes come out of Ursula Andress walking up the beach, and there is Bond kind of waiting for her. And he said at that moment, they then both rang London and said, we need more money, we now have a film. Up to that point, they didn't feel they had a film. I thought that was such an interesting thing because it, it it says so much about the film business. That is, one yeah. shot can make a film, can't it? You know, I know. But the other interesting thing for me was that um, Connery and Sir Andres didn't bother to actually attend that particular screening. 
Right. Really. Oh well. Yeah. So uh, tell us tell us how, how how kind of reggae finds its way into the mix, you know, which it obviously oh. does very well, early we on. Got, we haven't really got to reggae. Well, I suppose we have kind of in the in the forty fives, but you know, it starts with it goes way back into to Calypso and then there's the advent of ska, blue beat ska, rock steady, and then reggae. So it's it's a process as opposed to it being, you know, straight into something like that. Right. So I'm looking now at, uh, at a cover of Byron Lee and the Dragon Airs, Caribbean Joyrides. I know. This, this is 1964. Uh, yeah. Tell us about this. Well, the... Byron Lee and the Dragonairs were actually a, a kind of more a cabaret band than they were anything else. So you, but if you actually, the sleeves probably are better than the music. The right. music's okay, but the, the, the covers on those, and we actually discovered there was a, a third variant, which was the Australian cover. And somebody okay. that um, I came across, I mean, it's a wonderful thing that you come across all these strange people, not strange, but just amazing people on the internet um, and they offer you, oh, I've got a copy of this. If you want to include it, then include it. And that's how the, the third cover came through. But I mean, it's it's graphically, it's a, it's probably more exciting than the actual music. Right, <laughs> right. We should ask actually, were there any records that you, you couldn't get hold of? They're just too, too rare and difficult to find. Uh, there's three or four that I don't have in my own archive. Um, the Ornet, um, what do you call it, Harold McNair with Ornette Coleman's Sidemen album. I don't have, I would love to, um, but you know, I'm, I can't justify spending anything up to 1500 quid on one piece of album vinyl. It doesn't make any really. sense. I mean, it's <laughs> just unbelievably rare. Um, I'm trying to think of the other ones. I've got the vinyl, but I don't have the sleeve for the first Owen Gray. I mean, that's how odd these kind of things are. But at the same time, you know, there are there's a small collector community who are obsessive, and I suppose I could be counted as being obsessive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if something has a different cover, then you tend to pick it up. Yeah. There's a wonderful kind of cover sad, to, the, suppose, to the, the Birth of Scar uh, album, which we should to just drop in actually from 1964. It's just beautiful. The line drawing of a couple dancing on top of the word scar, you know. Were those, I know but uh, it was never released. Yeah. Oh, it was never that. released. No. It was never released. Yeah. It was pressed up to white label. I've got the white label. I've got the um the cover, but it, it never came out. And it's it's you know, it's just fantastic. Just a fantastic album. Why wasn't it released? Who knows? I mean, stuff like that, honestly and truly, is lost to the mist of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, not everybody's alive, don't forget, no. who, was, who was working there at that time. Um, I mean, David Betteridge is, is and is a mine of information. But, you know, I asked him the exact same question and he kind of looked at me blankly and he said it was 50-something years ago. How the hell am I going to remember that? Yeah, Why absolutely. wasn't it released? I don't know. One of, my one, one of my favourite bits in the book, I haven't got it in front of me, but I, is it John James? The, there's a, a guy, there's a record put out in the late 60s with an attractive lady on the front of it, and you actually ask Chris Blackwell, David Betteridge, all the people who ran Ireland at the time, 
So do you remember anything about this? And they all go, no, 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 no memory whatsoever. Can't tell you anything <laughs> about it. She's nice, though. You know, I thought that was that's so telling. You know what I mean? Because that it it gives you an idea of the kind of it's the chaos of a small record company, particularly in those days. You know, they did what they could do, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's it's. It started out, the first interview I did on that particular album, um, and it's the, oh, God, it's a black and white sleeve, and I should yes. tell you immediately what the the name of the artiste is. Um, Rob Bell, Bob Bell, um, he said to me something along the lines of, I've no idea why we put it out. It's all in Italian. I can't remember it. <laughs> Betteridge couldn't remember it at all. He just stared at it and looked at me blankly. And then I asked Tim Clark. And Tim said to me, he said, I remember it, but that's all I remember. Yeah. yeah. Which I thought was fantastic. And then and then and then I couldn't not ask CB. And he kind of looked at me totally blank and he went, I'm honestly not a clue. But he said, the girl's really pretty though. There you go. <laughs> but of course it's the it's the fate of all this stuff that that there's more known about all this stuff now. 50 years later, that was yeah. known at the time, isn't it? Because you got people like you and, you know, doubt, no doubt people all over the world and completists and, and discogs or whatever. The amount of information is just growing all the time, isn't it? Well, it is, but I think it's also really important that it's not left to, and I'm not going to knock Wikipedia, but I think it's really important that something like this is done and it's done properly whereby you actually have all the accurate information that goes alongside it so you have the if you like you have the amusing little tale of of the album we've just been talking about but then there's also the fact that you read up about oh such and such an album was released on this date you actually look the actual day up and it was a sunday well, how on earth was yes, it the yes. a sunday yeah. and i i personally find things like that you know, when we're not at Cat Stevens yet, because that starts with volume two. But if you look up the Cat Stevens album release date, they're all wrong. The first three are wrong, plain yeah. wrong. How can that be? It should never be. Uh, well, I suppose so. Yeah, but it, 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 the record business is very much vaguer business in those days than it subsequently became, didn't it, really? You know, working out exactly when these things were can be quite hard. But anyway, yeah, I suppose. Go but, on. To me, it's kind of important that because you know sooner or later we're all going to pop our clogs, aren't we? And oh, I'm you, not Neil. No, of course not. <laughs> speak for yourself. But, <laughs> speak but, for yourself. <laughs> no, but the point I'm trying to get at is that there won't be in time to come. There won't be anybody who remembers. No, no. And therefore, our children's children will look at this and go, "Oh." And there's no information. There should it's be. It's true. You are you are to, to, to Island Records like Mark Lewison to the Beatles. To... Well, that's probably the most amazing comment compliment I've ever had. Thank you. Wow. So they so then we're going into the mid-60s, and then you know, Ireland is starting to, you know, sell records into the UK. And it's selling them initially to uh, people from the Caribbean who've moved here, and there's yeah. there's still a you know there is clearly a very strong market for Scar, and then subsequently reggae and so forth. 
Yep, absolutely. And that's exactly how it worked. So you had this is the this is when Chris had done the deal with um, the produ- all the producers, most of the producers in in Jamaica. It's all pretty well known, and he was selling records out of the back of his car. So it was him and David Betridge at that time. They divided up London between them. David did mainly the south, and CB did the north and the 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 West End. They weren't getting any records played on the radio. Virtually nothing was being looked at on um, in 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 the press. Um, so it was literally hand to mouth existence. And then, of course, what, Millie. What were on. the big sellers that transformed the 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 business for? Oh, the big album sellers would have been. Um, the Sue story, volumes one, two, and eventually three, uh, Club Scar 67, Club Scar 68, those in terms of the albums. Um, the first big 45, believe it or not, would have been probably Roy C. Right. Shotgun Wedding. Shotgun Wedding, of course. Was that a top 10 record? Was it? Was it a? Was it a top ten record? It was no? number seven, if I remember. Oh, right, there you go. Oh, yeah. yeah, and that was just before the World Cup in nineteen sixty six. Right, right. But I as you I mentioned, buying it, I do actually. But also, as you can, re- as you referred to, my boy Lollipop was obviously absolutely transformational. Yeah, I mean, you know, it. The story behind it is well known, and but it just. It was licensed to Fontana. I think that's probably Chris's one of his most important decisions ever because he was aware it was one minute fifty eight. I think it ran out at he was he the first time you heard it, you knew it was it, but he was savvy enough not to actually go. You know what? We have our little label. We can put it out. We do it ourselves. Yeah. It would have yeah. it would have floored everybody and everything. It wouldn't yeah. have happened. It wouldn't yeah. have been the hit that it became. And there was an enormous hit. And then he kind of, he did something a bit similar with the Spencer Davis group, didn't he? Very because much that, so. that, that again went to Fontana. It wasn't on the, under the island label, even though they were his. They were his Absolutely. Signing. It was a guy called Jack Baverstock, um, who the deal was done with. And although the first, I think it was first three, first four Spencer Davis 45s weren't the, you know, the big hits that eventually they then, they then later later had. So, but then moving moving from Spencer Davis to, to Traffic, you know, yeah. this is 66, 67. And this is the first time you, you, you start to become aware of the island label and the island brand. Well, it, became, it became pink. The label became pink. It went from, you know, red and white, which was the bow tie label, um, and the reason for it moving to the pink label was because, and again, I quote Chris, it was that there was nothing Jamaican, remotely Jamaican, with something that that had a pink label to it. So I'm looking here at the at the traffic, um, the spread in the book of the uh, of the single of Here We Go Around the Mulberry Bush, and 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 the four members of traffic on the left here. You know, um, making their way through a through a, a farmer's field. This was very. This was, you, I I can remember what a big deal this was. You know that 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 this was one of the first times that you were being 
deliberately shown the the supposed creative process visually before before you heard the results. Oh look, traffic! There is Steve Winwood's formed a group, and they're going. They've gone off to a cottage, and everybody who read the NME and the Melody Maker or the Record Mirror in those days knew about the cottage before they'd heard any of the records. Really, yeah. yeah. Do you think was that was Chris Blackwell aware of that building this mystique? You know, I've, I don't think he's ever been asked the question. And I don't think at that point in time that people thought in that kind of way that, ooh, you know, the long game wasn't there, really. No, I mean it probably that, wasn't deliberate. It wasn't sorry? a piece of marketing. It probably wasn't deliberate, was it? In terms of a piece of marketing, I don't think the word marketing had even been thought No, no. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure There's a lovely time. bit in the your introduction where I think you're on a school camping trip and you're right. You're in Aston Tyrol. You're right by the cottage, and you you meet up. You actually go and visit the cottage, don't you? Isn't that right? What happened was that yes, it was. It was a a Duke of Edinburgh's thing where you had to. You were dropped off at point A, and then you had to walk to point B, but you had to camp overnight. And we were on the edge of the Berkshire Downs, and so. And David, you're right. Everybody knew about this fabled thing, the cottage. And anyway, so I'm there with a couple of chums and we're walking along this little lane up a hill down the other side. Car comes hurtling past. And I kind of looked at it and I thought, hold on a minute, those faces are really, really familiar. And I didn't really think any more about it other than I told my friends who I thought had just kind of hurtled past in this car and they kind of guffawed loudly. Anyway, so we get to the end of this lane where it petered out into what could only be described as a track and barely a track at that. And there was a, it was a kind of a, you could either go right or you could go straight on. And the one that, the, the, the track that went straight on was less defined than the one that went to the right. So I said, well, look, what we need to do is let's go up there. And, you know, we're kind of roughly heading in the right direction. We had compasses and maps and all this, you know, ordnance survey stuff. Anyway, after about half a mile, I suppose, something like there was a copse on the right-hand side. And then it opened out and there was this white sort of building old farm cottages it's never a farmhouse it was two farm cottages and um there was a pink van parked outside and there you go zodiac that <laughs> had gone past us they're and not the agricultural van, workers no no <laughs> yep, yep the pink van had the traffic logo on the side of it, and it was <laughs> it's, like, it's impossibly thrilling <laughs> it really <laughs> is the holy was, grail well, no, it was then, what do we do? Do we go yeah. and knock on the door? So we did. Really- if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Albert, Albert Heaton, who's died now, he, he was the main traffic roadie at the time. He was the guy who, who we first met, or who I first met. It's fantastic how much material there is. You've got pages and pages of pictures from Aston Tyrrell of them playing in the house. That, in fact, that, that whole getting it together in the country thing was a very, a really influential part of the rock music story, really. Absolutely. There was a well, huge those, amount. Those they must pictures, have realised how valuable it was and they photographed it all the time. Yeah, those pictures are incredibly important to the entire thing. I mean, the traffic and the cottage, as as I've kind of put it, it's not just traffic, it's the cottage because it's such an important formative part are the first and steve obviously a first cornerstone of ireland but those pictures that you've seen have never been seen before or the bulk of them have never mm. been seen before and uh i've basically tracked john benton harris down and amazingly he invited me to uh where he lives in the south of london and he just sat there all here i've got this i've got that i've got that just incredible. Absolutely so he was a, he was a photographer, was he? He was the photographer who took those initial early pictures of traffic, and he event he did the um, uh, the Mister Fantasy album cover as well. But that's pretty much what anybody has ever seen. But the other pictures in and around the cottage, Steve playing the double neck guitar, mm. um, them rehearsing inside, them playing inside. Everybody's used to the Barry Wenzel picture, but that was taken, you know, a year later. Right, right. So these are these are are just extraordinary. I'm looking now at a, at a, at a spread which got Jethro Tull, um, you know, digging uh, in their kind of strange agricultural garb. Um, <laughs> opposite, opposite a, a page of some of my favourite stuff in this book is just the old. The old semi-display ads from the Melody Maker, or the, or the uh, absolutely lovely. You know, see, if you go to the marquee, and uh, this is September the first, nineteen sixty-eight, you can see the nice, supported by yes, I think, uh, Jethro Tull with Love Sculpture, 
Dream Police with Kippington Lodge, of course, Nick Lowe in Kippington Lodge, I think. Yeah. Uh, the Taste, not Taste, The Taste. I think yep. it's really important. This. Keith Harley, Jeff Beck and Red Light District. Now, they, and Fairport Convention, you know, what's really interesting, that's a week of the marquee in 1968. Yep. There's only one group there that's forgotten as Red Light District. Yeah. It's extraordinary, really, isn't it? Is. It's absolutely astonishing. When you think of it in those terms, yes. I think those adverts are incredibly important because they also contextually set the whole thing in its own it's in its own place. This is it. They 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 always say that this is I'm gonna make but one of my pet theories about magazines. You don't just read the content, you read the context at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you can see here. You got, I don't know where this ad appeared, but Jethro Tull appeared at the Roundhouse on 2nd of November by kind permission of the Marquee Club, where they appear next on the 26th of November. Because in those days, you couldn't play a gig within, what was it, three miles of where you'd played the week before or something along those lines. I love you know, that. I mean, Jethro Tull, you have to thank Spooky Tooth for for Jethro Tull appearing on Island, because what happened was... Was it Gary Wright was the, saw them? At, there's a kind of debate about Chris. whether it was Gary or whether it was Kelly, and um, because Kelly was kind of a, a, a good friend, I kind of side with him on it. But anyway, what happened was that on Wages Day, Wages Day was Friday, and all the bands and the, the acts would go into... Uh, Oxford Street, 155 well, Oxford And they Street. actually got a cash in an envelope, didn't they? Yeah, literally. That's, yeah. That was wages day. And um, and then um, uh, and Chris had this thing whereby if you see anybody out on your travels, out on the road, then tell me about them. And whoever it was from, from the Spookies said, you know, we saw this guy and he plays flute and he stands on one leg. That'll do. That sounds gimmicky enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) And went and tracked them down. I mean, how bizarre is that? Who were huge sellers for them, weren't they? I mean, that was a major... Oh, they were utterly breakthrough for everybody, though. was. Because they were the first first of the acts to really make in America, weren't they, Jethro Tull? Because they went and they worked there like crazy, more than anybody else did. Yep, yep. And do you know who interviewed them probably more than anybody? Nick Logan. Yeah, probably. He probably he might get quiet about it now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, no, it's, it's always a joy for me going through old copies of the yes. enemy. You go, there's Nick interviewing, you know, Captain yep. Beefheart in 1967 yeah. or something yeah. like that. Or reviewing um, Fairport Convention at the... At the yeah, at absolutely. The you, you did what there was yeah. to do. Now, yeah. you mentioned Spooky Tooth. It did fascinate me that, that they went through such transformations so, so quickly, didn't they? Because yeah, they I were. Do have, I do have something to show you. Go on. Talking of spooky, I kind of figured that the spookies might actually appear. So I don't know whether you can actually see this. Oh, it's just oh, yeah, an island, island well, head and so day paper. I'll, I'll read it to read you. Read it out. It actually, it's going to appear as a full page in volume two. It's dated January 29th, 1969. Memo to Spooky Tooth. Chris Blackwell. The weekly cash advance of £30 each to members of the group depends on gigs being done as booked. This is because this figure is only secured if a sufficient total value of work is actually earned every month. 
in future, £10 will be deducted from each member for each gig missed. <laughs> Basically, they're being fined for not turning up for gigs. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but how that, brilliant is that? That's the spooky tooth, tooth work ethic for you. Well, they were a but bit Chris of a handful. Blackwell was so involved, wasn't he? Because he was. it was Chris Blackwell who, I think, brought in Gary Wright, I think, realising that this was a brilliant singer and this was a group that weren't quite going anywhere. And he was very, very good, wasn't he, in making those connections and, 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 and producing com- commercial packages. Well, what happened was that... Um, Traffic's first dates in Scandinavia, they were supported by a group called The Times or New York Times. And Gary was the singer and keyboard player. So he brought the group to London, fired the group, kept Gary, then brought Art, as they were at that time, which was Kelly, Mike Harrison, uh, Luther and Greg Ridley, and basically said, you will work with you and you will work with you. And that's how Spooky Tooth evolved. And then they got the name Spooky Tooth from a pen friend of Gary's um, who suggested all these different names. Uh, Kelly told me he hated the name. In fact, all the rest of them hated the name, but it worked. Yeah, it's so of its time. Actually, art to feature in the book too, I think, with the supernatural fairy tales, most amazing. Well, this is it. They were the VIPs. Then they were art. Then they were Spooky Tooth within a really short space of time, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then within the book, there's also the, um, it's called The Chapter of Life, which is this promo booklet that Guy Stevens had done. And I think that the one that we, we have in the book is actually probably the only one that exists. And that's in Kelly's wife's possession now. I, I want to talk rare, about... Rare as rare as rare. Mm. I want to talk about one whole, whole area of Ireland. I know a fair bit about Ireland, clearly nothing like as much as you. Um, but it was a, an absolute surprise to me was the whole humour stuff, the whole adult humour and, and, the, and the rugby songs albums. Now, I remember these rugby songs albums. We all did. They were always in you know, all big record shops, weren't they? This is where you could get something a bit saucy, you know. But I didn't they tell us the story about how Ireland were involved in this. Well, it was through, oh, crikey. Um, oh, hold on a minute. I have to get this right. It's. The surprise label was introduced to Chris via Barbara Cuddy. She worked for this kind of mafioso guy in in New York. They kind of hooked up and um, what happened then? Uh, The first album came out first. Uh, hold on, I'm getting completely muddled. Right, tell, tell you what I'm going to do. Let me do, let me just put this question again. We can edit this bit, yeah, and I'll put it in a different way. So you don't, you know, one of the things that really surprised me about the book, one of the things I really liked about the book, was that it had it has the whole story of Ireland in there, and including stuff I never knew was anything to do with Ireland, <laughs> such as why was he born so beautiful, the rugby songs album, and the various albums of adult humour. This was presumably just a business opportunity that they they saw could be useful to them. I think it was a business opportunity. I think it was 
a an opportunity to sell some records, but more importantly, it actually saved saved Island's bacon um, because Chris was away for a year or so working with Millie. She was going around the world. Obviously, my boy Lollipop related came back. Island were not in great shape. The um, the rugby songs albums, two of which came out. And they actually sold so many copies that it actually propped the, the 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 coffers up. It's as simple as that. But Chris said he recorded the first of the the albums. In fact, he probably recorded both of them, and they were probably both done at the same time. And it was at the old Olympic Studios, not the one in Barnes, but the one that predates the the one in 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 uh, in that part of London. And they got he got banned. From from the original Olympic, because the studio ended up awash with beer, no, <laughs> literally no, awash with beer. No. There was a piano at one end of the studio. There were crates upon crates upon crates of beer at the other end, and the gap in between was like a sort of a mill stream of beer. So this was them recording whoever it was, the Jockstrap Ensemble or whatever. And there's an album, isn't there, of bawdy British ballads. There's a, re- a record called Music to Strip By. It was absolutely... Yeah. I'm really glad you put all that stuff in because yeah, it, it, I definitely. just didn't know anything about it. And it was so Did funny to think that, it, it, you know, it might have been, um, you know, and it might have been the, the, the rugby songs or, or, or risque comedian Belle Bath or whatever, whose success gave them the money to hire, to fire, to um, to to um, to sign Hapsash and the, and the Coloured Coat or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it's just a... It's just an extraordinary moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's it wouldn't happen in a day and age like we have now, would it? No, not no, remotely. No, 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 no. It's great that that's been. But I suppose it, it just indicates it's always the problem that independent labels have that you can have one hit, but then it might be followed by a real fallow period, and you've got yeah. to keep paying out money. So well, if you one, go on. I was just going to say the one thing I didn't know until I spoke to Tom Hayes. Tom Hayes ended up as, as Ireland's sort of eminence grise. He was the wise man and director of business affairs. At that time, he was one of the sales guys on the road because Ireland was beginning to expand. And he said, oh, you want to talk to me about the Rugby Songs albums? And I kind of went, yeah, if I may. And he went, that gave us our first gold disc. I mean, I'm sure. I mean who knew that? No, yeah, no. No, I'm sure. They probably didn't make a song and dance about it at the time. So <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so that's merely 1959 to 1968. Yep. So as you say, the next one's 69 to 70. Yeah. So then you get into, I don't know, King Crimson and all kinds of things. And well, Cat, Stevens the, as, the, the, the Cat Stevens, of course, the samplers. The ones that you mentioned earlier, yeah, nuts enough to eat. You can all join in, and then the bumpers, the double sampler, which I don't think, frankly, has ever been bettered as a, as a track listing. I, right. I honestly don't think that's been bettered. They were such and, important, influential records. Those absolutely. Well, incredible. I mean, the other part of it for 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 what we're doing is that people are gradually kind of, if you like, coming on board, and suddenly they're kind of going, you know what? I have got this as a nice little artifact. Maybe this will be useful for you. So I was speaking to Paul Samuel Smith a while ago. He, oddly enough, lives on the other side of France to us. And he said, would you like all my track sheets for all the Cat Stevens albums I recorded? And so they will be there um, illustratively. Nobody's seen stuff like this 
I mean, a lot of this stuff, in my view, should be it should be in a museum somewhere. Well, except you've got to find a museum, haven't you? Really, that's not. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean by that. That, that no uh, reason. It not needs easy. to be preserved. Well, look, so there's merely the first volume, which is you know can be yours if you can lift it. And, and but it does it weighs a ton. I've got it on a I've got it on a solid flat surface in front of me, which is the best place. I, I find I put it in the front I just I put it in the desk in the front window, and as I'm looking out the front window, I just read a bit of it. And uh, and um, found it absolutely fascinating. Journey really, it's into the, the past. It's such a labour of love. I know there's an old cliche, but the the idea that you you tracked down all those people, that you collected all those bits of ephemera, you got hold of those record sleeves, you made all those phone calls, and you pulled it all together. How long does that take? How many years you were working on volume one? Fifteen years. Fif- really? Yeah. Fifteen years you start yeah. that lot. My God. Yeah. Well, it started, but I didn't really know what I was starting. And it was actually only really when Kelly died that um, I remember vividly standing there at the funeral, looking at this coffin that none of us expected to see and thinking, shit, if I don't actually get on with this and start properly talking to people, yeah. then, um, you know, people will be dead. It's yeah. as simple as that. You're not going to get those ever ever again so i mean first person odd that i interviewed was winwood I, I rang steve up and said look this is what i'm going to do you know are you prepared to sit and sort of talk about things that you know not the normal kind of questions and he kind of hummed and heard and he went yeah all right okay so we met for lunch halfway between his place and this is when i was living in the uk and we just sat and talked and i think he gave a more full kind of interview than than he'd ever done before. So there's a huge heap of stuff I had from him. And then I thought, right, okay, I've got that. And then I interviewed the guy who did, do you remember the LP album? Yes. Oh, LP. 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 So I did, I, I, I interviewed him and that was just on the phone. He lives, oddly enough, very close to where Gareth Mankiewicz lives in, um, in Cornwall now. Right. And he told me, he told me they shot the real peas that they shot, and they had to have he called it a pea roadie yeah, because yeah. the peas <laughs> under the lights were going off. Hey, this is it creating a smell. Yeah. So they had to send somebody to wherever it was the market in London nearby where they were shooting and get a fresh bag of peas. This I'm is so what glad it, someone is doing things in this kind of this level. This is of what we do. This is why food photography is a very legitimate uh, area of, uh, of photography, isn't it? Because <laughs> food goes off seriously. Yeah. It's people specialising. It has to look warm. Absolutely. It has to look hot. It's yeah. Well, look, it's a fantastic piece of work, Neil, and we won't stop you from getting on with volume two and three and four and whatever, because we'll be looking forward to seeing those uh, in you. due course. Uh, nice to talk to you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.